Good morning, church. It's wonderful to uh, be together again. Uh, I actually had the opportunity this week to uh, go to a co- Gospel Coalition conference in Charlotte. Uh, and so it was uh, extremely encouraging and, and refreshing and invigorating. And so to, uh, to be back and to bring the word after such uh, an exciting conference and, and meeting with other pastors, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little jazzed up right now. So I'm really excited to, to be uh, with everybody as we're, we're sitting in the word this morning. So uh, this morning... We're, the, the text that we're looking at we're, is looking at Jesus as the great high priest, and specifically how the, the high priest would make atonement for his people. And I know that word sounds very churchy, uh, the, the word atonement. Um, for those of you that have, have grown up in the church, or if you've been in church a lot, you might have even heard that word so much that you just don't really even think of it that much anymore, that you hear so much about Christ's atonement that it just kind of glosses over as one of those church words that you've heard time and time again. But if you're new to church, it it, it might seem a little unfamiliar, like what exactly does it mean that Christ made atonement for his people? It might feel a little unfamiliar, but the concept of atonement, the word atonement itself, is not exclusive to the church. In fact, it, it simply means a reparation for a, a wrong or an injury, that if, if something bad has happened, in order to make atonement, something good must follow to, to, to make the bad thing better. Uh, and we see this played out in, in everyday life so often, but we don't actually think of it as atonement. There's the, the familiar cliche that when a husband has done something wrong, he better come home with flowers or chocolates or some combination of the both. That it might even sound cliche, but that is a form of atonement to, where, to say that the husband has done something wrong and he is bringing a, a gift uh, bearing uh, flowers and or chocolates uh, to, to atone for what he has done. Uh, in, in fact, the, the flower websites even have sections called I'm sorry flowers or apology flowers. This is a concept that people are familiar with. Um, there are people that view shopping as a, a form of atonement by approaching shopping as a retail therapy that something in their life is wrong, either stress or depression or something like that, and in order to try to make the wrong thing better, they go out and just go shopping. They're trying to uh, find some way to, to atone for the bad things that are plaguing them. They want to feel better, so they experience retail therapy. Uh, we're familiar with the concept of, uh, of product recalls. I actually just got a, a letter in the mail a, a few weeks ago uh, uh, about the, the Honda Pilot that I drive, that the year, of, the year vehicle that I drive uh, actually has a faulty passenger side airbag. And so I can go and get that replaced for free. The, the company says that we did something wrong 
And we want to atone for that. We want to make it up to you, so we are going to fix it for free. That is a form of atonement. Sometimes it's just someone feels guilty over something that they've done. They might have been caught. They might not, and just their guilt is eating away at them. And so sometimes you even see the people that overcompensate because of their guilt, that they want to start doing just uh, an abundance of nice things to where you can visibly see something is different in you. Like, why are you behaving like this? It's because the guilt that has eaten away at them, they feel that they must make atonement in their behavior, the way that they treat the people around them, as if they're trying to balance some sort of cosmic scale. As if somewhere in, in, in the heavens that there is this, this uh, holy scale that, that their bad things, their, their guilty deeds are piled up on one side, but if they can just do enough good things and they can kind of balance that out or maybe even tip the scale in their favor. Unfortunately, we often can approach God in the same way, hoping that God has a cosmic scale that we can tip in our favor. If I can just do fill in the blank, that will atone for what I did. Because you and I will often look at the things that we've done in the past. We look at our our mistakes and our sins and we feel guilt and shame. And we say, I know that I messed up, but if I can just do X, Y, and Z, I might feel a little bit better about myself, but I might even make God love me a little bit more. I might make him a little less unhappy if I, if I go to, to more Bible studies, if I sign up for that mission trip in the summer, if I can volunteer in my community even more then that might make up for the things that I did. And those are all good things, but they can never atone for your sin. We read this passage in in Hebrews, and I would actually say that the author is arguing that your atonement is found in no person other than Jesus Christ. That your atonement is found in no person other than Jesus Christ. And I know, uh, especially in church, that sounds like an obvious statement. Of course, that's why we're here this morning. But the natural tendency, when you and I are confronted with something that we have done wrong and must be made right, our natural inclination is to say, well, I need to make this right myself. I did something wrong. I need to make it right. And so the author unpacks three ways why Christ alone can atone for sin. First, he shows us the relatability of Christ in verses, uh, or chapter 4, 14 through 16. The relatability of Christ. Secondly, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he, he unpacks the role of the high priest. So first is the relatability of Christ. Second is the role of the high priest. And then lastly, in chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, the reliability of Christ. The relatability of Christ, the role of the high priest, and the reliability of Christ. 
Before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for this time together. God, we thank You for Your Word that You communicate with Your people. That this wasn't just something written to the church generations ago, but that it is living and active and still applies to us today. God, I pray that my time up here is not just me uh, sharing my thoughts or my musings, that this isn't my ideas, this is not my agenda, but God, I pray that you would use me in spite of myself to communicate your gospel truth. Pour out your spirit in this place. Captivate hearts, transform minds, not through my speaking, but by the power of your word. I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so a quick recap to catch uh, everybody up to where we are right now in Hebrews, because we've been in Hebrews for the past few weeks, but Hebrews is a letter written by an unknown author. Uh, Unlike the other letters in the New Testament, we don't actually know who wrote Hebrews, but it was written to a group of Hebrews. They were Jewish converts to the Christian faith. And so it's the letter to the Hebrews because they are coming from a Hebrew background and knowledge that, that, that this was their upbringing and he's unpacking the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. They know what we call our Old Testament. They're familiar with it. But this letter is actually kind of a collection of many sermonettes where it's just one little sermon after another where the author is unpacking uh, what has been familiar to the Jewish people, but now God has revealed something greater, someone greater. And that's the Son, Jesus Christ. And over the past few weeks, over the, the previous chapters, the author has unpacked how the Son was greater than, than the prophets and how God used to communicate to His people. The, how the Son is greater than the angels and the heavenly beings making God's people holy children of God. How the Son is greater than Moses and leads God's people into a greater rest than just a Sabbath rest, but gives the hope and promise of an eternal shalom rest in the presence of God. And so he goes from this uh, uh, concept of rest and, start, and begins unpacking and comparing Jesus Christ with the role of the high priest. And in fact, he shows his first point, the humanity of Christ in the relatability of Christ. Both in how you relate to Jesus and how Jesus can relate to you. In chapter 4, verse 14, the author writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. That Jesus is fulfilling this role of a high priest, not as a priest here on earth, not just a physical presence, this priest who has entered into the heavenly realms. This is not just uh, a, a priest next door. This is not the priest at the temple. But this is the priest sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And because of that, hold fast 
our confession. Cling to what we believe about Jesus Christ being the Son of God because He is not just another person. He is not just another teacher. He is not just another priest. But He is the great high priest who has entered into the heavenly realms. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness because Jesus understood and understands the struggles that people experience. He had the same struggles and weaknesses. Now granted, culturally over time, the, our, some of our struggles have changed technology-wise. Jesus was not worried about getting the latest update onto his iPhone. But the concepts of struggle and weakness and frailty remain. That there was frustration in his life. There was opposition in his life. He had a, a human body that suffered the limits of the human body. He needed rest. He slept. The Scripture unpacks that he needed to go and sleep. He needed to go and take a nap sometimes. He got hungry. He ate with his people. He wasn't just this divine angelic being that did not need physical sustenance, but his body would be weak without proper nourishment and food. He grieved over loss and wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He experienced weakness and suffering and loss just as any other person. And the author says that he was tempted as we are, but without sin. And some people would, would think, well, how could he be God if he was tempted? The temptation or the sin is not in the temptation itself. The sin is in giving in to temptation. In fact, the fact that Jesus never gave in to temptation reveals the strength that he had against it. Many people are familiar with the writings of C.S. Lewis, with the, the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and our kids love it. It's one of those Sunday standards uh, that we watch about every other month. We've got to go home and watch The Lion and the Witch of the Wardrobe again. But in his book, Mere Christianity, which if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's one of those books that I personally go back to every other year just as like a refresher class for my own soul. But in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis is talking about temptation. And he says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. 
They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that the only way to actually know the strength of something is to actually fight against it. The only way to know the strength and the struggle of temptation is to resist against it, not to give in. And the fact that Jesus Christ never gave in to temptation and to sin reveals His strength and His victory over sin and over temptation. Matthew 4 and Luke 4 both chronicle Jesus' temptation in the wilderness where He is fasting And Satan comes and and tempts Jesus to question God's provision and God's plan. Basically, each of, of the enemy's temptations are saying, you have the power, do it your way. You're hungry, you have the ability to make these stones into bread. You don't have to suffer, do it your way. You're about to start your ministry. Instead of doing something quiet, go up to the temple, jump off. The angels will catch you. You can make them do that. And you can start off your ministry with this glorious show of power and people will really follow you then. Do it your way. And each time Jesus rebukes Satan and says, no, I'm not going to give in to temptation I'm going to submit myself to what the Father has done or what the Father has has said for me to do. Even as as He's praying before His own crucifixion, there's the temptation to avoid the suffering and death that is coming. Because He had the power and the ability. He could have said, no, I am not doing this. He even prays, Lord, If there's any way that you can take this cup from me, please do it. But not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is the only one that truly knows the power and the struggle of temptation because he's the only one to face temptation and never give in. And that is why the author says in verse 16, Sorry, I lost my place there. Let us then with confidence, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We draw near with confidence, with assurance, with the freedom and boldness to approach the throne because Jesus is not a a mere philosophy. He's not a moral teaching. He's not some kind of cosmic karma, karmic scales that you can hopefully try to tip in your favor. But we can draw near with confidence because as John recorded in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh. That God put on flesh to know, 
to relate to the struggles and temptations and weaknesses that you and I have experienced, yet without giving in. God in His humanity, Jesus in His humanity, knows your struggles and your fears and your doubts. Can I truly trust that God is going to provide? And we're reminded of how Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. That God can do more with the inconceivable than we could ever hope for. How can I ever forgive that person that did me wrong, that hurt me, that wounded my very soul? As Jesus was crucified, and he's nailed to the cross, and he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Is God's plan really better than what I want to do? I want to do X, Y, and Z. Is, is God's plan for my life really better than what I want to do? The people in Jesus' time expected a Messiah that would come and bring a political revolution. And instead, God sent His Son to bring eternal spiritual freedom. You and I have our eyes set on something immediate and much smaller than the grand eternal promises that God has given His people. This is the relatability of Christ. That Jesus is not just one of the guys, but He knows your heartaches. He knows your struggles. He experienced those struggles and yet without sin. And as He sits on the throne of grace, He says, I've been there. I've gone through that. And I am with you. And then just as the author comforts us with how, with how Jesus understands and relates to us, he gets to his second point, the role of the high priest. Because it's, it's difficult to be thankful for what Jesus did as the great high priest if you don't understand what a high priest did in the first place. And so picking up in chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. The very first high priest was Aaron, the brother of Moses. And he was appointed to that role. And it was the role of the high priest was passed on through his lineage that his children would be the next high priest and so on and so forth. And that the high priest, this was not some temporary deal until someone better came along, but a high priest was high priest for life. It was a divine role and office. And their job was to approach God on behalf of the people. They were, the high priest was a mediator, an intercessor, to go to God on behalf 
of the people to atone for their sins and to appeal to God's mercy. And once a year, on the, the 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 Day of Atonement during Yom Kippur, the high priest would offer a bull sacrifice to make atonement for any of his sins that he might have inadvertently caused himself for his unintentional sins. And after he had been purified, the high priest would select two goats by casting lots. And the first goat, he would lay his hand on the goat and symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto this goat. And then they would cast it out into the wilderness, taking the sins of the people away. And this is where we get the concept of a scapegoat. A person who takes the sins of other people upon themselves as this high priest would transfer the sins symbolically to this goat and cast it away, that this goat is removing the sins of the people from Israel. The second goat would be sacrificed and the priest would take the blood of the goat and enter into the Holy of Holies where no one else was allowed to go and the high priest could only go once a year into this holy area that held the Ark of the Covenant. And he would sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial goat on the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Praying that the mercy of God would accept this sacrifice and cover the sins of the people. The high priest was not removed of guilt. He was not removed of sin. He was still a sinful man just like everyone else. He still had to atone for his own sin. Hence the bull sacrifice. And so because of this, he should know compassion and patience. He should not view his office lightly or without concern for others, but knowing the weakness and the frailty of his own sinful condition. He's confronted with his own weaknesses and so should interact with the people of God with mercy. Once he purified himself, he atones for the sins of the people pleading to God to show mercy because the sacrificial blood of the the goat was not enough to wipe away their sin. It simply covered it. Picking up in verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Even Aaron was called by God to this role. The greatest high priest that Israel knew in that, on the Old Testament time that Aaron himself was called into this role. Not because he was more holy than the other people, but because God had placed him there. Just as Aaron was placed in that role, the author says Jesus Himself, the Son of God, was called to this office. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but He was appointed by Him. In John 8, 
the Jews approach Jesus and they're asking him, are you saying that you are greater than Abraham, the, the father of our people? Are you saying that you are greater than Abraham? And Jesus replies to them in John 8, verse 54, and he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I'm not coming saying that I am better. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say He is our God. Jesus is saying to the people of Israel, I'm not the one that says that I'm great. My Father called me to this role. He's the one who sent me. The one that you claim is your God, He is the one who has glorified me and put me in this role. Jesus didn't claim His own glory. It was given to Him by the Father. The Father who says, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. And that's quoted from Psalm 2, verse 7. And then the author quotes Psalm 110, verse 4. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is kind of an odd person. You only actually see Melchizedek in one spot in, in Genesis, and we'll actually unpack who Melchizedek was in a few weeks, but he was a, a, a high priest outside of Israel that blessed Abram, and Abram offered tithe and sacrifice to Melchizedek. And that somehow that Jesus is not just a generic high priest, but he is of the line of high priest that Abram, the father of Israel himself, offered sacrifice to. Jesus does not come claiming his own glory. He's not just some, some teacher or some healer that said, you know what, I think I've got a knack for this. I'm going to take my show on the road. But he was called to the office of high priest just like Aaron was. That God the Father sent him to be not just a high priest, but the great high priest to atone for the sins of the people not once a year, but once for all time. And then we really see this unfold as we get to the author's third point. The reliability of Christ. Picking up in verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. The days of his flesh are just referring to his life on earth. Even today, Jesus is still in flesh as he sits at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But when the author says in the days of his flesh, he's referring to his earthly time. And this Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. He prayed, not just for himself, but he prayed for his people with passion, with emotion. This wasn't just some monotonous rote prayer that he would just recite day in and day out that had no impact on him. But he was moved to tears on behalf of those he loved. 
He prayed with passionate cries and tears to Him, God the Father, who was able to save Him from death. And He was heard because of His reverence. We saw earlier that Jesus was tempted yet without sin. This reveals that the Son was eternally obedient to the Father. And His coming to earth in the first place, and His earthly living, and His sinless life, and His obedience to the point of going to the cross and to the point of death, the Son remained obedient to the Father. And because of this, the Father hears the prayers of the Son. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And when you first see that being made perfect, wait a minute, I thought that Jesus was supposed to already be perfect. He lived a sinless life. He's the Son of God. Why why was He not perfect before? This is not Him who is made perfect, but His obedience has been made perfect. He lived a sinless life. He never gave in to His temptation, but His obedience was made perfect because He obeyed the Father perfectly. He was tempted and never gave in. And because His obedience had been made perfect, He was made the source of eternal salvation. Jesus is reliable because He is the source of eternal salvation. He's not one path among many. It's not like everyone's trying to get to this mountaintop and you can take any road you desire. But Jesus Himself says in John 14.6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Me. That He is the only Son of God. He's not a child of God. He is the only begotten Son of God and the only person to live a perfectly sinless life tempted just like you and I have been without ever giving in. And this only Son of God took His sinless life. He took your sin upon Himself and took it to the cross. Not the blood of bulls and goats, but His own blood. His own blood was shed for not for continual atonement, not that He would have to go up and be sacrificed year in and year out. Oh man, it's, the, it's Yom Kippur. Jesus needs to get on the cross again. Oh man, I sinned again. Jesus needs to get on the cross again. But no, He shed His own blood one time to cover the sins of all of God's people for all of time. Even if somehow in your life you managed to only sin one time, somehow you managed to pull that off, Scripture still says that the punishment for sin is death. Even if you only sinned once per day, That's 365 death sentences a year. 
My birthday's coming up in October. I'm going to be 39. And I sat down and did the math that if somehow, or I, were, if somehow I were able to only sin one time a day, by the time I turn 39, that will be 14,235 sins. That's 14,235 death sentences that I should owe. And that's just one sin a day. There's no way I could ever pay that off. There's nothing I could do to erase the stain of that sin and that guilt and that shame. If there was some sort of heavenly scale that measured how good a person could be, I am hopelessly lost without a chance of tipping the scale in my favor. But when Jesus sacrificed Himself, your sin and your guilt and your shame was transferred to Him. The biblical term is imputed, that it was a status that was applied to Him. And as the great high priest, His blood washes your sin away. It doesn't just cover it, it washes it away. And it makes you clean and turns away the wrath of God. And He does what no earthly priest could ever do. He doesn't just cover your sin, but He takes it away and makes you righteous and holy. You become a child of God because of the sacrifice of Christ. And so when God sees you in Christ, for those of you who believe in His sin and resurrection, God no longer sees you, but He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the obedience and the faithfulness of the Son. He sees a holy child of God. There's nothing that you can do to add to that. There's nothing that you can do to make God love you more because when He sees you, He sees His Son. And you don't have to earn that holiness because the Son already earned it on your behalf. You don't have to be good enough or to do enough good things to atone for your sins because Jesus already paid for you. You have been bought with His own blood to an eternal salvation that has been obtained on your behalf. And so will you continue to live trying to be good enough, hoping that if you just do enough good things, you can atone for your past sins and mistakes, desperately hoping that somehow you can do enough good things to tip that cosmic scale in your favor? Or will you live not trying to be good enough, but trusting in the greater high priest who gave His own blood to pay for you? That His blood has turned away God's wrath and declared you righteous. And will you rest that the sacrifice of Christ was enough and has paid for you one time and is done? How then will you choose to live? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess that far too often we try to take our holiness into our own hands. God, we confess 
that we have messed up. We've made mistakes. We have sinned intentionally and unintentionally. And we try so hard to make it right on our own. But God, we realize that there is nothing that we could do to make that right. There's nothing that we could do to take away the thousands upon thousands of death condemnations that we have earned. But God, we rest our hope and our trust and our eternal security that what Jesus Christ did on our behalf was enough. That His one sacrifice, His one payment of His own blood covers us and makes us eternally clean and righteous and holy and that we are no longer guilty of a death sentence but that you see us as your sons and your daughters. You call us your beloved children because of the work of Jesus Christ. Let us rest and hope and find our peace in him alone. And it's in his high and holy name we pray. Amen.